0: Well, good morning. Great to have you here today. And I uh, trust you had a great week. And uh, we're going to dive back into our uh, appendices study. Some of those uh, issues in 1 Corinthians that we didn't jump into as, as uh, deeply as maybe we needed to or would like to have covered cover maybe from a little bit different perspective. But yesterday... Um, we're texting back and forth. My family, you know, like many of you do, probably do the uh, stream with your texts and your family and doing all that stuff and some, whatever it, the topic is. Sometimes I just don't even jump in, but then sometimes I, I absolutely do. And uh, this one, my daughter sends a text of a picture, the, the very first one there um, on your left and the Pennsylvania Starbucks mug. She'd been wanting one of those, having grown up here and now living down in Virginia with her husband and kids, and so John Mark, who works at Starbucks, got her a mug and took it down. They were going down that area anyway, and so all of a sudden, Abby sent us a picture, and and we're looking at that, and then she starts sending these other pictures, other views of the mug, and I'm like, come on, what in the world? And then all of a sudden, it's like, hey, Abby says, Chuck... Wants to, her husband wants to know what does use mean? <laughs> he grew up as a missionary, kid in Germany. He's like, use? What in the, what in the world is that? I jump back in, I said, you know, that's what you hear in this there, hey, use, how you doing? And that kind okay, well, I'm not sure if that's just a Scranton thing or a Pennsylvania thing. I feel it, like I don't know. So then somebody goes, well, what's yin's? Uh, I have no idea, but I know what to do. And so do you, right? What do you do? You, ah, there you go. You Google it. Yeah, you jump on your phone and you go, okay, yins, what is yins? And and I found out it was uh, something that's, that's more specific to the Pittsburgh area, and it just means y'all. Hey, y'all, how you doing this morning? I'm like, yins y'all I, I don't have any idea where that came from so then we keep this keeps going and it's like what's the pie about and what that could that mean Jane jumps in it's got to be shoe fly pie you know Pennsylvania Dutch who knows and then and then we're going somebody talks about the flowers and the flowers are on here in a couple spots and what's with the flowers what are they who knows so what what Jane does it again she Googles it and she finds out, do you know what the Pennsylvania state flower is? Mount Laurel, I had no idea. We didn't know. So that's what that's supposed to be. You know, now I know a cheesesteak when I see one. I grew up in South Jersey, so you don't have to. Anyway, we're going on. And then I saw the mushrooms. Anybody know about the mushrooms, where they're from? Kennett Square, yeah. Uh, and do you know that? Kennett Square produces 68% of the mushrooms for our entire country. And you say, who cares? I agree. Uh, (laughs) I agree. But let me ask you, the source of our information was what? The internet. Yeah, Google. And uh, maybe you don't have Google a search engine, but maybe you're Safari or whatever else it might be, Edge and... uh, the whole point is, is the internet always true and reliable? Oh! So, how do I really know that that's a mountain laurel? Ah, yeah, good. How do we know that's shoe fly? Po- well, the internet says, okay, the internet ever been wrong? Ah, yes, it sure heads. of course, nobody likes to admit that. But what's the standard we use for gathering information? If we have questions like these and, and we don't know the answer, where do we go? We go to the Internet. Well, what is is that? We already know. That's not always dependable. So we need information. We need facts. We need answers that are true. How do we know? Oh, listen to the news. Oh, that's a good one, right? Yeah, uh, that may be just as not Definitive as the internet may be, but what's true or not true about a Starbucks coffee mug representing Pennsylvania isn't a major life-changing concern. However, there are issues of life that we need answers to, that we need to know how to think, that we need to gain an understanding. And uh, so what about abortion? How do you know whether that's right or wrong? How should we think about same-sex marriage? How should we think about this whole gender identification thing going on in our culture? How are we supposed to think about uh, the prosperity gospel? You say, I'm not even sure I know what the prosperity gospel is. Well, you probably do. You just don't know it's called that. How do we know or understand what the Bible says or, or, or what we should as believers think about one believer taking another believer to court? How do we figure that one out? Is that, is that an okay thing? Uh, they, people do it. Believers do it. What about sex before marriage? What about divorce for two people who say they know Jesus Christ? What about uh, dating of a believer with an unbeliever? What about marriage of a believer with an unbeliever? How, do, how, do we, how should we think about that and what standard do we use to do so? How about telling others about Jesus? What, is, what should we think about that? How about making disciples? How about getting baptized? How about becoming all things to all people? Now, some of those issues we've talked about in the book of 1 Corinthians. But how do we come up with answers to these issues of life? How, how do we know how we should think about it? Our culture sure tells us how we should think. But what source do we use? Where do we go for answers? Now, some of you are probably thinking, that's an easy one. I go to the Bible. Of course I go to the Bible. (laughs) Others, for you, it may not be that way. You may not go to the Bible first, or you may go to the Bible as one option, but you may be thinking, you know what? The Bible doesn't say a lot about these issues. So if the Bible doesn't say anything about that, how do I come up with an answer? Or maybe some of what the Bible says about some of these things is kind of dated. That's a little out of touch, maybe, with really what's happening in 2022. Um, Or maybe you say, well, you know, I've met some people that think differently about things. I never thought that way. Or I've had some different experiences, and and that experience is going to help me to make a decision. Or I'm just not sure how to do that. And there are some of these issues that you just mentioned that I I don't know what to think. What should we think? Well, it's okay if you say, I'm not sure what I should think, as long as you don't stay there. Because we have to figure out how we ought to live our lives and how we ought to respond and how we ought to think about these. So I'd like to invite you to open your Bibles this morning to 1 Peter, excuse me, 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 16 to 21, page 853 in the Bible that's underneath the chair in front of you. If you want to hold a Bible, uh, there should be a Bible uh, close at hand underneath that chair right in front of you. And in that Bible, page 853, uh, but on your phone or tablet, your copy of the scriptures, 2 Peter chapter 1, starting at verse 16. Now we've spent some time talking about this whole business of progressive Christianity. In other words, we looked at what that means. And, and if you weren't here, you may not understand that term. What it simply means is it's, a, it's kind of a new term. It's the, the exercise itself has been around for a long time. It just was never called that. And, and we talked about this business of deconstruction. We talked about people who are walking away from their faith, who are, who are changing what they believe, who are deconstructing their faith. And who in some cases are literally walking away from Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is just not relevant. There is new things that I think. And and I'm not interested anymore. People are altering their faith to adjust to our American culture. And if the culture says it and promotes it and talks about it. I better adjust what I believe to be more in tune with the secular values that our culture seems to be promoting. That's called cultural conformity. And we as believers sometimes fall in that without even recognizing it. It's not new. But again, the pressure to be like, to think like, to act like, to talk like, to look like our culture is huge today. I thought at first maybe it's bigger than it's ever been, but I'm not sure that's the case because when we just studied through 1 Corinthians, we saw that that was one of the major issues that was going on at the church in Corinth, was they, back then in the first century, were also being pressured to bring their new faith in line with what the culture said or the culture that they had just been saved out of. Cultural conformity. Do you ever wonder why Israel would want to be involved in cow worship? You say, cow worship? When was that? Well, do you remember? When Moses and Joshua went up on the mountain to get the law, and Aaron was left behind with the Israelites, and what did they do? Yeah, Aaron made a golden calf. When Moses came back down the mountain and, and saw it, he says to Aaron, What's going on here? So, I don't know. All these people gave me the gold and I just threw it in the fire and out came this calf. (laughs) Sure. Sounds like you're a seven or eight year old, right? I don't know. But why would they do that? Why would they make a golden calf? Because the culture around them, the Egyptians and the Canaanites worshipped the cow. Cultural conformity. You see, Reason and experience today have been given priority over the scriptures. Reason and experience. If I write reason through things, rationally think through things, or if I have an experience that tells me something important that maybe I'd never thought about, that gains priority over the scriptures as the final authority in the life of an individual believer sometimes. If you don't feel something is true, including what the Bible may say, it's okay. Because if you don't feel it's true, that doesn't mean it has to be true. That's the rationale, the thinking that's being used today, along with this whole business of progressive Christianity. Our statement of faith, we pointed at this a couple of weeks ago when we were looking at future events our statement of faith says this we believe that all the words of the 66 books of the Bible all right what we call the word of God what we call the scriptures we've used that term we've talked about that term we'll look at it again today but all the words of the 66 books of the Bible as originally written in the original manuscripts okay uh Are the inspired word of God entirely without error. Entirely without error. And then it goes on. What the Bible is the final authority for judging. Now get this sentence. The Bible is the final authority for judging what we believe and how we should live. Is it for you? If you know Jesus today. Is the Bible the final authority? That's like the bottom line answer for what you believe and how you live. We believe the Bible supports using a grammatical historical method of interpretation in light of the progress of Revelation. Folks, I think it's critical as we've gone through the book of 1 Corinthians and we dealt with some issues and some subjects that... Uh, Paul was teaching that they as believers, as a church, ought to be living their lives in a certain way, believing things in a certain way, and Paul was trying to help them. We have the Word of God that helps us to know what to do with these areas, that whole list of things and more that I just listed off for you. But I want you to answer this question as we think about this morning, and you can find that on our website there, um. Uh, that's the. Uh, you can go right to the website, and there's a, uh, tabs across the top for about us. Click on that. You'll see beliefs. Click that. It'll take you right to it. Or just plug that address in there as well. But as we think about this, folks, we obviously believe the Bible is very important for you and I who know Jesus Christ. We said that. That's nothing new. But does it really, is it the final authority for judging what we believe and how we should live? And I would ask you this question, how is the Bible the final authority for judging what you believe and how you live? See, that's real easy just to say, oh yeah, I can answer that question. Yes, it is. That's how I know what I believe and that's how I know how I should live. Okay, but whether or not we do it, right? So my question is, how is the Bible, the final authority for judging what you believe and how you live? In other words, is what we've said there in our statement of faith, and we're going to look at it here in the Word of God this morning, because it's not our statement of faith that matters. That's not the authority itself. That comes from the authority of the Word of God. So that's why we say that is what we believe so the question would be then is it how so are we living our lives based upon what the Bible says or based upon what the culture demonstrates before us I recognize there are some of those cultural issues folks that we're dealing with today I mean our country is more polarized it seems than it's ever been before you can't just take a middle stance. You can't just say, well, let's agree to disagree. We've talked about that. No, you've got to take a position and we've got to stand for what we believe. We've got to know the word of God so that we can know what we believe and then live that way. And that's my concern this morning. Because as we continue to move on, we're going to deal with some issues. We've talked about that. We're going to look at marriage on Mother's Day. We're going to review a little bit of what Paul said in 1 Corinthians about marriage and about divorce. We're going to talk about homosexuality after that. How do we know? What does the culture say? Well, you know what the culture says. What does God say? We better know what God says about these issues. As we talk about the word of God is critical. So let me read for you. Follow along with me in 2 Peter 1, verses 16 21 and Peter says this verse 16 for we did not follow cleverly devised stories your translation may say myths that's what what it is you could read fairy tales we did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming, coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty He received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory saying, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. Verse 19, we also have the prophetic message as something completely reliable and you will do well to pay attention to it as to a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. For prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This morning, I want to talk to you about the authority of the Bible, the authority of Scripture, the authority of the Word of God, by using the authority of the Bible to prove my point. You see, sometimes we feel like we've got to go outside of the Bible, We feel like we've got to go to archaeology. We feel like we've got to go to uh, reason. We feel like we've got to go to science because, folks, science doesn't, real science doesn't disagree with the Word of God. Some think that it does and try to make a big deal about that, but we're going to use the Word of God as we talk about this to show that the authority of, of God in His Word ought to be how we live our lives. As one writer put it this way, you can't establish the supreme authority of your supreme authority by using a lesser authority, an external authority, right? This is God's word. You say, well, that sounds like circular reasoning. In other words, you say you should believe this book and then you say the book says you should believe this book. Well, you know what? Have you ever talked to a philosopher Or a a secularist who tries to say, well, reason is how we come to conclusions, we think that way, and how do they prove their reasoning? By giving you more reason. Scientists would say, well, we prove science, is this, that, and the other thing. How do they prove that? By using science. So we're going to prove the Word of God. Now, we won't do that in its entirety. This will not be an exhaustive study of, of the authority of Scripture today. That would take us years. But I want you to understand that it is critical that we will use the supreme authority in our lives to show and to prove that it ought to be the supreme authority in our lives. So three truths necessary to understand the authority of the Bible. Number one, inspiration. Now, I hope you have your fingers loose and ready to roll. Not, not, not on your, you know, latest game or anything but on on (laughs) on the text right and so as we do this inspiration we need to understand that the word of God is inspired we looked at this kind of a few weeks ago in in uh, second Timothy chapter three but as we talk about this here's here's what we talk about you can't just any longer just say yes I believe in inspiration because somebody would say oh yeah me too Did you watch the uh, Grammy Awards? Oh, I was so inspired. (laughs) That's a different kind of inspiration, folks. So we've had to say, okay, we believe in the verbal inspiration of Scripture. Well, what does verbal inspiration of Scripture mean? Verbal means every word. Every word in the Bible as you read Scripture. Now, we've said, in the original manuscripts. We're not talking about all of the different translations. The different translations, we're using the NIV. Some of you would use the ESV. Some of you would use the NASB 2020 or whatever. Some of you may have the New Living Translation, which is more of a paraphrase than a translation. Whatever it is you're using, we need to understand we're not talking about those very words And and we're talking about the original manuscripts of the Word of God. And, And what we know is it inspired. And there's a whole process by which we have been able to arrive at the copies of the Scriptures that we have so we can know they're reliable. But we'll talk more about that at some other time. But today as we talk about this, verbal inspiration, every word we believe is given to us in Scripture, is God's word, what he intended us to know and to have. Well, then that didn't kind of settle all of the arguments, and, and people would be always looking for something to overturn the authority of Scripture. So there, there came the word plenary, the verbal plenary inspiration of Scripture. And plenary, what the word means in not just every word, but every area Every concept, every issue that it deals with. Some would say, well, the scripture is only inspired in the spiritual things that it talks about. So when it just gives us more kind of non-spiritual issues, genealogy, that's really inspired? Yes. So plenary, every thought as we talk about all the parts, the whole Bible, every bit of it. And then we had to add the word infallible. And the word infallible would mean the exact words that God wanted. They're never wrong. They're absolutely true and trustworthy. They're reliable. They are authoritative. And then we had to add the word inerrant. Inerrant. You've heard the term inerrancy. We'll talk about that in just a little bit. But 100% accurate without error. And so as we talk about, again, the definition, and I put this up because I want you to see it. I want you to get it. It's a, it's a little longer than if I read it to you. You may not grasp it, but I've got this definition for um, in, inspiration, and it says this, the Holy Spirit superintending over the writers so that while writing according to their own styles and personalities, in other words, their humanness, the result was God's word written, authoritative, trustworthy, and free from error in the original autographs or manuscripts as we call that. Now, look back to 2 Peter because I want you to see this business of inspiration. Um, verses 20 and 21. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things For prophecy never had its origin, here it is, in the human will, but prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Say, describe that. That's how I would describe it. The Holy Spirit moved in the hearts of those individuals who wrote. Here, for 2 Peter, for Peter, the Holy Spirit carried Peter along. 2 Timothy, if you want to keep your place in 2 Peter, but a few books back, 2 Timothy and chapter 3, we've referred to this before, but 2 Timothy chapter 3, this is what Paul says about the Bible, about Scripture. And we read this, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, all Scripture is God-breathed. That, those two words, God breathed, actually in the original are one word, literally meaning God breathed. In other words, God, it came from God. It came out of God. The words that Paul wrote, that Peter wrote, that Luke wrote, came from God himself. That, why? Because that's what the Bible tells us. We'll come more to the proof of that in a minute. But that's what he says. Verse 16, 2 Timothy 3, all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. You want to know how you should live and how you, what you should believe? Right here. That's why we have all Scripture. It's given to us to use as those who know Jesus. in Inerrant. That's the definition. God-breathed. Secondly, let's look at that word inerrancy, all right, because that's critical. In other words, it is totally without error. Everything that you read in the Bible is completely accurate, reliable, and trustworthy. Inerrant, without error, without mistake. And there are two evidences that we use to establish that. Now, if you were to go to court, if you had to go to court, um. Let's say you got a ticket for running a stop sign and you don't think you ran the stop sign. You'd go to court and you'd have to present your case or your lawyer would present your case. There are two things that, that would help you. If you had an eyewitness testimony, somebody said, I saw, they stopped. That would be really good. Or if you had some kind of written document. Now the police officer would have a written document called a ticket, right? Right? And and so whatever you might have maybe you get the testimony of so whatever but two things in court that will help necessary to solidify a case would be the eyewitness testimony and authoritative documents. I want to take back in 2 Peter, Peter talked about there in verses 12 through 15 how he was with Jesus. He was an eyewitness. Notice that as as Peter says that Uh, Verse 12, so I will always remind you of these things, even though you know them and and are firmly established in the truth you now have, I think it is right to refresh your memory because I know, verse 14, that I will soon put aside as the Lord Jesus, um, here it is down in verse 16, I'm sorry, there it is, for we did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power, but we were eyewitnesses, look at Matthew chapter 17, Matthew chapter 17 if you want. If you just want to listen, write it down, check it out later. The first eight verses. And what we have in Matthew chapter 17 is the account of the transfiguration. When Peter, James, and John went up on the mountain and saw Jesus in his glory. That's what Peter was talking about here in 2 Peter chapter 1 verse 16. And he says this, verse 1 of Matthew 17, after six days Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, led them up the high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before them. What does that mean? Well, he tells us his face shone like the sun and his clothes became as white as light. Just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. It is good for us to be here. Verse 5, while he was still speaking, a bright cloud covered them. And a voice from the cloud said, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground terrified, but Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said, don't be afraid. When they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. God the Father, the voice, pronounced his blessing on Jesus the Son. And Peter, James, and John were eye witnesses of what they saw. Now, I gotta take you to uh, what we looked at. L- Luke chapter... We looked at Luke chapter 24, and I'm going to come to that in a minute. But 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Now, you know that because we've been there. And 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul talks about in verses 1 to 8, right, the gospel. Verses 1 to 3, he talks about the gospel. Verse 3, what I received I pass on to you is of first importance. Christ died for our sins According to the scriptures, he was buried. He was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. But now look at this. Verse 5, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, and to the 12. What would those guys be able to claim, Peter and the 12? That they were eyewitnesses of the resurrected Jesus. They saw his body. Then it goes on. After that, verse 6, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time most of whom were still living though some have fallen asleep then he appeared to James the half-brother of Jesus then to all the apostles and last of all Paul says he appeared to me as to one abnormally born what are we talking about an eyewitness account that's what stands up folks but where do we find out about all this right here Now, I recognize that there's all kinds of external proofs that I could throw to you and give to you, share with you, that will without question give us evidence that what we have here has stood the test of time and there's not a mistake in it. But here we're saying what the Bible says about itself. Peter was an eyewitness. Paul was an eyewitness, and that's critical. You could look at Luke chapter 1 and the first four verses when Luke Luke talks about writing the book of Luke. He said, I set out to be an eyewitness. I wanted to know all the exact account, I wanted to have the right details so that I could share that with you. Then we talk about authoritative documents. Authoritative documents. Well, how do we know that this document that we call the Word of God has the final authority? Well, look back to Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24. told you your fingers were going to get limbered up this morning, right? We were there last Sunday morning. One of the resurrection accounts, Luke 24. Do you remember Jesus... In the afternoon was walking, he came upon two disciples who were walking on the road to Emmaus and he just kind of came up and began to talk with them and they were disappointed in what had been going on and as they, he listened, Jesus listened to them. Then he says to them, verse 25 of Luke 24, we mentioned this last week, but it may be in a different context. I want you to see it this way as an authoritative document because Jesus said... How foolish you are and how slow to believe. How slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. What prophets is he talking about? He's talking about the Old Testament. When Jesus says that, he is validating. He is authenticating the Old Testament as a godly, divine document. Jesus talks about the prophets. He's not done. He goes on. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. What authority did Jesus use for what had just happened? The Old Testament. Jesus authenticated the Old Testament for us. That is a verifiable document because Jesus referred to it. Now, we could go to the end of the chapter, verse 44 of Luke 24. Jesus, again, he's there in the the room with them behind locked doors. He said, this is what I told you while I was with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds to So they could understand the scriptures. He told them, This is what is written. What's he talking about? Again, he's talking about the Old Testament documents. He's authenticating the documents by simply referring to it. Jesus is talking about the Old Testament as divinely given by God. And we could go on, but again, we're talking about the authority. Of the word of God We looked at 2nd Timothy chapter 3 verse 16 There's another evidence of that Simply saying All scripture Is given By inspiration of God 1st Corinthians chapter 10 1st Corinthians chapter 10 Maybe you write this down And I'm not going to read the whole thing But verse 6 is Paul's teaching the church in Corinth 1st Corinthians chapter 10 verse 6 He says Now these things Are Occurred. He's just talking about the Old Testament He's talking about how Israel went through the Red Sea You'll find people today who are a part of the whole progressive Christianity movement Who would say that's baloney There's no such thing as miracles like that That was a cleverly devised fable Even though Peter says no, we we don't follow those Because you see there's a group of people who are walking away from their faith and what they believe who are saying there's no such thing as the miraculous. That doesn't matter. All that matters is the point is that God can be powerful or that God was active in the lives of people. We don't need to believe such stories that like God parted the Red Sea and let Israel walk through and then brought it back in and wiped out the Egyptian army. We don't need to believe. We don't need to believe the virgin birth. All that matters is that Jesus was born that way. The authority of scripture is critical that we understand. First Corinthians chapter, so that's what he's teaching. Verse six, now these things, all of what's there occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. See, Paul is saying that we need to learn from the example of what's written down in the Old Testament so we can be better as believers. Verse 11, these things happened to them as examples, notice, and were written down as warnings for us on whom the culmination of the ages was to come. What's Paul talking about? Where are they written down? The Old Testament. The scriptures, the documents, the authenticated, authoritative documents of the Old Testament. We could go on. We're back there in 2 Peter where we started. 2 Peter chapter 1. If you just look to the end of chapter 3, you would find out as you look at verse 15. Peter says this. 2 Peter 3.15, bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation, just as our dear brother Paul, who also wrote you with the wisdom that God gave him. What's that? Inspiration. Peter's talking about what Paul wrote. Verse 16, he writes the same way in all his letters, speaking in them on these matters, His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort as they do the other scriptures to their own destruction. That's what's happening today, folks. Distorting the scriptures that have been written to make them say something or interpret them in some way that that's not the intent that was given. inspiration inerrancy interpretation interpretation have you ever heard had as you're teaching somebody what do you believe about this and you say well the Bible says this and and they say to, well that's your interpretation how do you answer that question well that's your interpretation I don't interpret it that way okay well is there a standard for interpreting well as we talk about this, let me just share the watershed issue in understanding all of Scripture is the method of interpretation we use. The principles and methods used to interpret the Bible are critical. And they need to be the same across the board. Paul or John in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 1 said: the revelation, if you read Revelation 1:1, this is what it says. The revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He's talking about the future. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John. Revelation. That's the title. We're told the revelation from Jesus Christ. That word means to unveil, it means to reveal. It means to remove the cover so that we can understand what it is that God wants us to know about the future. That's what the book of Revelation is. God has given his word to us to help us. He wouldn't have given it to us. He wouldn't have called it a revelation if he didn't intend for us to understand it. Right? Right? That's what we're talking about. So how do you understand that the key principle is a literal interpretation? You say, what does that mean, literal interpretation? That word means belonging to letters. You use the grammar, the letters based on actual words in their ordinary meaning doesn't mean that you can't speak figures of speech. For instance, if I said Jane and I were sitting out on our deck yesterday afternoon and man, there were millions of mosquitoes. Would you think that I had actually counted millions? No, you'd say, he means there were a lot of mosquitoes. They probably have bites to prove it. But that's a figure of speech that we use. That's part of literal Understanding of scripture there are figures of speech that we need to get and understand but we need to do that consistently across the board as we're looking at that so uh, figures of speech symbols and when we talk about prophecy there's all kinds you read through the book of revelation there are all kinds of symbols that are used. But look at this. When Mark chapter, and you don't have to look, write it down and check it out or just go back to the Gospels, Matthew, Mark. But in Mark chapter six, verses 30 to 34, we have the account when Jesus fed the 5,000. Remember? The loaves and fishes, right? And so how many were there? Well, the Bible says there were 5,000 men. Do we... What did he mean? See, that's different than, man, there were millions of mosquitoes in our back porch. No, there were 5,000 men. Should we interpret that literally? Absolutely. Why? Because there's nothing in the context that would indicate anything different. And then how many baskets of food were left over? Well, when you read through, you'd find out that there were 12 basketfuls of bread and fish that were left over that the disciples gathered. Should we think that that just was like two, but Jesus meant a lot? So the Bible says 12, or should we think that was 1,200, but Jesus just said 12 because it really doesn't matter? Well, no, that wouldn't make sense. Nobody would read a book that way. Because that, why? That's literal understanding of scripture. And then we say literal, we say grammatical, according to the rules of grammar. I hate grammar. Sorry, I, I do that all the time. I'm sure we have some English people and English teachers in here. Sorry, and I, I, I've had to learn it because in order to understand another language, you have to know grammar, right? But that's what, there are rules of grammar. I before E except after C, right? We figure out these kind of, that. you say that's spelling, okay, well you know what I'm saying. So grammatical, rules, historical, according to the historical setting, what's going on? We've said that all along as we've studied 1 Corinthians, that Paul is writing to the church in Corinth in the first century Greece, Asia Minor. That's the, we have to understand the historical setting and figure that out. And when we're understanding, interpreting scripture, and then we have to do it in the context, contextually, what does that mean? Well, you do know the Bible says there is no God, right? Have you ever seen that? Yeah. In Psalm 14, verse 1, if you'd look it up, you'd see, you could find it. It says right in there, there is no God. Now, I just took that out of context because some of you probably may know that the verse actually says, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. That's context. That's what we're talking about. And when we're interpreting Scripture, we must look at things in context so that we know exactly what the writer meant as he talks about that. And, and, and here's, here's a kind of a, A famous statement, we just were studying with Scott for his ordination, and we went through this, we talked about this, but here's the saying that we often use. Many people will learn it when they're in college, Bible college, or seminary, and that's this, and I have it for you. When the plain sense of Scripture makes common sense, seek no other sense. Therefore, take every word at its primary, ordinary, usual, literal meaning unless the facts of the immediate context studied in the light of related passages indicate clearly otherwise. The plain sense of Scripture makes common sense. Seek no other sense. But you see, when you get people talking, especially when you get into future events, and and they come with all kinds of different positions about different things, one of the things that they do is they'll say, well, we interpret this literally, but we don't interpret that literally. In other words, we may say, well, um, when we read in Revelation, and where it says a thousand years, well, that's not really a thousand years. Really, what, what John means, what Jesus means when he's revealing to John is that it's a long period of time. Well, when we go back to chapter one of Revelation, and if you want to do that, chapter one of Revelation, and we read in verse 12 and 13, uh, Paul or John says this, I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me, and when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands." Well, should we think seven? Or should we think a thousand? If he said seven golden lampstands, why wouldn't we think seven? And then we go down to verse 16, Uh, in his right hand he held seven stars and coming out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword. Should we think that's 17 stars or that it really doesn't matter, he's just saying he had stars in his hand. Well, you see, scripture interprets itself for us. And so when we go down to verse 19 and 20, write therefore what you have seen, what is now and what will take place later. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Literal understanding and God uses, John uses, Jesus Christ uses the the scripture itself to interpret itself. But he's talking about seven means seven. So when we get later on in the book of Revelation and we get to chapters 19 and 20, we read about the thousand year millennium. Is there any reason to think that that's not a thousand years? Some do. So that's why you've got to study it and look at it and understand it according to that truth. There are over 300 prophecies that were fulfilled at the birth of Jesus Christ, at his first coming. Over 300 prophecies having to do with all kinds of things about the coming, the birth of Jesus, the Messiah. Every one of them was completely, literally filled. Micah 5.2 the prophet Micah predicted 700 years before Jesus' birth that he would be born in Bethlehem. Did he mean Jerusalem? Did he mean southern Israel? Did he just mean somewhere in Israel? No, he said Bethlehem 700 years prior, and that was fulfilled Literally, completely, exactly as Micah. 300 different prophecies about the birth of Jesus Christ have been fulfilled. Literally, completely. Do you think that there's a reason why we shouldn't expect the same thing from here on forward? So that when we read in Zechariah chapter 14 and verse 4 that when Jesus comes at the second coming, not the first coming, the second advent, that he will return to this earth on the Mount of Olives do we think that that means it would be just again in Israel somewhere? Or do we understand that to be the literal Mount of Olives? There's no reason in scripture that we would think otherwise. We call that literal, verbal, plenary, infallible, inerrant interpretation of scripture. Well, that's the inspiration. Excuse me. I I switched my... So we're talking historical, contextual, grammatical interpretation of scripture. Right? Now there's a whole lot more to this, but here's the bottom line. Here's the bottom line, folks. You say, what does all this mean? Well, Peter says to us in chapter 2, as he moves on, chapter 2 and verse 1, but there will also be false prophets among the people. He's talking about then, right? Or there were, just as there will be false teachers among you. There were false prophets all throughout the Old Testament just like there will be false teachers among you. They will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the sovereign Lord who bought them, bringing swift destruction on themselves. Many will follow their depraved, conducts, will, uh, the, many will follow their depraved conduct and will bring the way of truth into disrepute. Is that happening today? Absolutely. Peter's warning as he had just given a scripture about the authority of God's word. Folks, we read the authority of God's word. Listen, it is inspired, it is inerrant, and it clearly can be interpreted so that we know exactly what it was that God was revealing to us when he wrote it. Is there any reason you can think of when it's so clear and understandable. Yes, there are some hard places here and there, but again, understanding God gave it to us to reveal his truth to us. When it is still clear and specific and understandable, folks, this is God's word. Can you think of any reason why we shouldn't follow it, why we shouldn't obey it? And that's my whole point this morning. This is the authoritative word of God. It is the only, the only source that we use for what we believe and how we live. It doesn't matter if you think something else. It doesn't matter if somebody else thinks something else. It doesn't matter if you have a different opinion or somebody else has a different opinion. It doesn't matter if we don't like it. It is the word of God. It is the scriptures to us, inspired by God. God breathed. It is infallible without error. You can't find one. People have tried for years. There are all kinds of books written out there by individuals who set out to disprove the word of God. And so many of them, C.S. Lewis was one of them. And so many come, Lee Strobel, same thing you hear about these guys who write the case for Christianity, the case for Christ, the case for the Bible, the case for faith, the case for the cross, the case for the resurrection. He was an atheist who decided he could prove the Bible was false. That's all external stuff. The Bible says it's the word of God. Jesus said it's the word of God. How can we not obey it? How can we not use this book? And moms and dads, your kids are facing stuff. You know, we talked about, I'm glad I'm not a kid these days. Because the stuff that they're facing all the way from kindergarten up into through high school and college age, the stuff that you're being pressured to believe and to buy into and all the rest of that, hey, This is where the truth lies. I don't care what you're being taught. This is where the truth lies. And parents, we need to drill this into our kids' heads after we've drilled it into our own heads. And hearts. And hearts, amen. What we believe and how we live. Do you believe in the authority of the word of God in your life? so critical. Father we live in such a difficult day and there are so many things that are just changing so quickly that are confusing that are different than what we're used to that we struggle with, that we don't understand the pressure from our culture to believe different things, to think we're out of date, to think we're old-fashioned. God, help us to grab hold of the authority of the Word of God as our final authority, our only authority for what we believe and how we live. Help us to obey The word of God, for it's in Christ's name I pray, amen.